Okay, we are continuing our study together in um, our book on the covenants, which is entitled From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven. And obviously that is a span of time. The Garden of Eden is where everything began. The glory of heaven is where everything's going to end. And everything that happens in the Bible happens between those two events. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the definition of a covenant and the importance of covenants. We're studying the subject of biblical covenants. And uh, we said the covenant is a sovereign, gracious, oath-sworn promise that defines uh, relationships. And so covenants define relationships as the key element. They're sovereign. God is the one who dictates them. They're gracious. They convey wonderful benefits to us. And they define the nature of our relationship with God. So that's what a covenant is. And why are covenants important? Well, the covenants are important because they are the framework of the Bible. They are, if you will, the central organizing principle of the Bible. They're the skeleton of the Bible, if you will. And uh, what they do is they provide the framework within which God's plan of redemption is accomplished and carried out. Now, what we then looked at is the fact that uh, in the beginning, God created uh, mankind and he created us in his image. He created us for the purpose of worshiping and serving him. Uh, he created us uh, in his image so that we uh, are like him morally, we're like him personally, and we're like him positionally. He made us body-soul units. Uh, but the problem is, is that we in the person of Adam rebelled against God. So not only were we created, but we became fallen. And as a result of Adam's rebellion against God and his violation of God's law to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam became fallen, he became depraved, he became sinful, and he became subject to uh, the promise of death that God issued when he warned him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what we have then is because of Adam's fall, uh, he acting as the head and representative of the totality of the human race that would issue forth from him, uh, in his fall, we fell. And so we became depraved in our natures, uh, we became corrupt in our desires, and we became guilty in our persons as a result of Adam's fall. And so we come now to chapter 3 in our study together, having seen that God created us, having seen that we have fallen, what then is God going to do about this? Well, what he could have done is he could have just terminated the human race at that point. He could have said to Adam and Eve, all right, uh, you did what I told you not to do. Um, I told you in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So goodbye, you're dead. End of story. But he didn't do that. What's amazing is in the very midst of the discovery of this sin and the declaration of this sin and of the judgments that attach to this sin, God issued a promise of salvation from that sin. And that promise of salvation from that sin is found in Genesis 3 and verse 15. So let's turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis chapter 3 
and verse 15. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we have the temptation of, of Satan when he tempted Eve. And we see that she uh, gave in to that temptation. She took the fruit and ate it. She gave it to Adam and he ate it. And they became aware of their alienation from God and from each other. And so they tried to hide from each other uh, and cover their sin by... Um, uh, sewing together the fig leaves, and they tried to hide from God by uh, running deep into the garden and not exposing um, their presence to Him. And so God uh, inquired as to where they were and why they were hiding. The truth came out, and God then began to um, uh, speak to the issue of um, man's sin and the consequence, consequences uh, that um, were going to flow out of it. Now, as we said, when they first sinned, they tried to solve the problem themselves. And the way they tried to solve the problem themselves is with the fig leaves and with hiding from God. And obviously that didn't work. And so when God confronts them, uh, he says to Adam, what did you do? And he shifts blame onto Eve. And he said, the woman you gave me. So he turns to Eve and he says, what did you do? And she says, well, the serpent. And so God turns to the serpent and he begins to address the serpent. And in addressing the serpent, he also addressed Satan himself, who was obviously uh, the animating principle behind the operation of the serpent. The serpent was not the true source of the evil. Um, the one who indwelt the serpent, namely Satan, uh, is the one who was the true source of all of the evil that took place in the garden. And so what God did then is he didn't say, well, you know, I really tried to have this wonderful garden and have these people that would reflect my image and enjoy eternal life. But, you know, my plans got messed up and I've just been defeated. Now, God didn't say that. Uh, God declared war. Satan had come and he had attacked God's creation. He had attacked God's creatures, namely Adam and Eve. And he had attacked really God's glory and God's authority. And God had a plan and purpose for the garden. And God was not going to be thwarted in the accomplishment of that purpose. So what we have then in Genesis 3, uh, 14 it says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And of course, he was addressing the literal physical creature of the serpent, and condemning him because he was an instrument of Satan. But then in, in verse 15, he turns to Satan himself, and he has this to say, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So what we have here is God declaring war on Satan. 
and God establishing and declaring his, his enmity against Satan. And what we have is God's determination to vindicate his glory. Um, the author of our study guide says, the promise of redemption is couched in warlike language in which enmity is declared and triumph is assured. The focus of this declaration of war is on the triumph of God and not on the rescue of man. Now that's a really important point for us to understand. God's primary purpose in issuing Genesis 3.15 was not to save man. His primary purpose in issuing the declaration of war in Genesis 3.15 was to vindicate his own glory. And so the promise of redemption is about the vindication of God and the fact that he will not allow Satan to triumph over him. Now, in the process of getting victory over Satan, he achieves our redemption because that was the little victory that Satan got. It wasn't a little victory. It was a big victory that, that Satan got, which was to uh, bring us all into sin. And God is saying, no, I'm going to bring them all out of sin. So what we have then is the uh, initiation of this enmity. And you'll notice in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And so Satan comes and he attacks the woman and the woman buys into what Satan has to say. And she eats the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And as a result, she has fallen. And so the first thing God says is the woman who cooperated with you, whom you approached and who you drew into sin is going to be your enemy. And so we see that the woman was set against Satan. And from that day forward, uh, the woman has been uh, uh, set at enmity against Satan. The woman he had lured into sin would be the first, so to speak, to take up arms against Satan himself. And then there was enmity between uh, these two basic groups of humanity. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And what this is telling us is that there's only two classes and categories of people upon the earth, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that is the children of God and the children of Satan. And so <clears throat> what we have is this division in the world into these two groups of the saved and the lost, and they are at war with each other as well. <clears throat> For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and in verse 15, um, the Bible tells us, What concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? And the answer is nothing. And the idea that the saved and the lost can get along is an illusion. I remember having someone say to me, can't we all just get along? And the answer is, no, we can't. It'd be wrong for us to get along with the people of the world because we're at war with them. They're servants of Satan. We're servants of Christ. They're in the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of light. Their whole goal is to rebel against God. Our whole goal is to obey God. 
what ground of fellowship is there between us? And the answer is, there isn't any. Now, this doesn't mean that we uh, throw hand grenades into their houses. It doesn't mean that we go and abuse them. We do love them. The Bible tells us we're to love our enemies. We want to see them saved like God saved us. And we view them with pity and compassion. But it is to say that we can't compromise with them and we can't cooperate with them in serving the cause, the kingdom, the motives, and the morality that they serve. And so we read in Revelation 12 and verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so Revelation 12 and verse 17 says that Satan and his people are at enmity against um, God and his people. And there's this tremendous war between the wicked and the righteous, between the Christians and the non-Christians. And we see that in the world today, don't we? What do we see in Islamic countries, for example? We see that uh, there's this war against Christians and, and Muslims do everything they can to murder Christians. And we see the same thing in atheist countries. Uh, we've seen the same thing in India with the Hindus and the Buddhists even, actively and openly persecuting Christians. And so we have this um, declaration of war on the part of God in Genesis 3.15, where he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and then secondly, between her seed and your seed. And so we see that this declaration of war is that there's going to be enmity between the Satan and the woman. There's going to be enmity between these two basic groups of humanity. And then thirdly, there's going to be enmity between Christ and Satan uh, himself. Because when it says that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman, that's a reference not only to... Uh, the body of Christians, but also to Jesus Christ in particular, because he is the seed of the woman. And one of the things we see in the covenants is the development and the revelation of who this seed is. Because you remember that when God said to Abraham, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, uh, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that this is very definitely a reference to Jesus Christ. And then, of course, uh, that seed was further illuminated as being the descendant of King David when God said, uh, your seed will sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Israel forever. And never would David lack one to sit on the throne of the kingdom of God. And so because of the nature of this enmity, there is never going to be uh, terms of peace. Uh, one side has to completely destroy the other. And, and that's the way it ultimately is going to be. It's not like God and Satan are going to sit down at the table and negotiate a peace and uh, learn to get along. Uh, Satan is either going to destroy Christ or Christ is going to destroy Satan. And uh, thus is, is going to be the outcome. So this then is the declaration of war that we have in, in uh, Genesis 3 and verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And it says then, the conclusion of that battle is going to be that he will bruise your heel 
and you will crush his head. And so what is being said there is that uh, Jesus Christ is going to crush the head of the serpent while the serpent crushes the heel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever had your heel crushed, which I trust most of you haven't had, but if you have, you know that's extremely painful. Uh, imagine having your heel put in a vice and it just be cranked down. Uh, that would be very painful, but you know what? It wouldn't kill you. But on the other hand, if someone's head is put in the vice and it's cranked down, that's the end of them. And so the same term is used in the King James. It says, it shall bruise uh, thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. And the word bruise there can also be translated crushed uh, because a bruising is, is a crushing. It's a compressing. Um, and so what we have here is the promise of victory. So we have the declaration of war. There's going to be this enmity between the woman and the devil. There's going to be this enmity between the woman's descendants and the devil's descendants. And then there's going to be the enmity between Christ and between Satan. And the nature of this war um, is, is such that it is unremitting and it is incapable of being resolved through truce. And the outcome of this war is declared very clearly when it says uh, that he shall uh, crush your head and you shall crush his heel. And so what we have here then is the promise of the coming of this victory. Now, there are at least four things we're told about this seed of the woman in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And the first thing we're told is that this, this deliverer, this savior from Satan and his work is going to come through the woman. And so God is going to use the woman whom the serpent deceived to bring into the world the very seed that will be the undoing and the destruction of the serpent himself. And so what we see is this promise of the seed traced throughout the scriptures, as I said, in the line of Abraham, from the line of David, and that at the perfect time in history, this seed would be born of the Virgin Mary. Now turn, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew 1, 1 is an incredibly, incredibly important and significant passage. In Matthew 1.1 1, 1 it says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now isn't it interesting that he was declared to be the son of those two individuals? And why was that? Because there was the seed of Abraham and the seed of David that was promised to be the one through whom all the world would be blessed and redeemed and through whom uh, the world would be ruled. And so what we have here is uh, Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham, and who is the son of, guess what? The woman. And thus we have the narrative of the virgin birth. Notice verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child 
of the Holy Ghost. And you know the rest of the story. Verse 25, And Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So the first thing we see about this promise of victory in Genesis 3 and verse 15 is that the victory would be brought to pass through the woman, not through the man. And that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, because that's the only way uh, he could be the seed of woman and not the seed of man. And of course, he had to be born of a virgin so that he would have a human nature derived from Mary and his divine nature, which um, he always possessed, uh, but which was united with his human nature uh, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The second thing we see about this promise of victory in Genesis 3.15 is not only that it's going to come to the seed of the woman, that the, the, um, uh, the deliverer is going to be born of, of a woman, but secondly, that um, the purpose of his mission is to uh, destroy. It's to crush. And it's to crush not a hand or a leg or a foot, but the head of Satan. So the purpose of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a diplomatic mission trying to make peace, but he's going to come as a man of war. And he's going to come, as it says in 1 John 3 and verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. It says, for this reason, for this cause, was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so uh, this, this, um, this promise of victory is that not only it's going to come to the woman, but secondly, it's going to come to destroy Satan. Okay, not make peace with him, but to destroy him. Thirdly, this promise tells us it isn't going to be a painless victory. It says specifically that the serpent is going to bruise his heel. And the idea here is that as Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, the serpent is driving his fangs into the heel of Jesus Christ. And... Um, you know, it's kind of like if um, a coal uh, pops out of the stove onto some flammable material and you're barefoot because you just got up and you're uh, filling the stove and, and uh, trying to get it going again. And, uh, you know, it lands on something flammable and you know if you don't put it out, it's going to burn the house down. So you're in your bare feet and you go over and you just and you step on. And you know it's going to hurt. And you know it's going to burn the bottom of your foot. But at the same time, you know that by doing that, you're going to save the house from being burned down. And, and that's the idea here, is that in order for Jesus to destroy Satan, he had to suffer greatly in the process of doing so. It wasn't a light thing when Satan bruised his heel. We have only to look at the cross to see what a painful thing that was that our Lord Jesus went through uh, in procuring our redemption and the cost that he had to pay. So we are delivered because Christ did not ease his own pain and suffering, that he just uh, endured the cross 
and, and, and despised the pain and the shame of it. And as a result is, is now set down in triumph. And so uh, finally Satan was, was destroyed. Um, the success of the mission is that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the Lord Jesus. Now this crushing of the head of Jesus in a sense was completed and accomplished at the cross. But in another sense, it is an ongoing defeat as well. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly that uh, in Christ's death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And we're told that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. And we're told in Colossians 2 verses 13 to 15 that Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And so did Christ defeat Satan on the cross? Absolutely, he defeated Satan on the cross. However, the Bible tells us that Satan still walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So though he's defeated, that defeat hasn't been fully applied to him yet in all of its ramifications, just like were we saved when Jesus died on the cross, he saved us. But that salvation has not been fully applied to us yet in all of its ramifications. And so while our salvation was secured at the cross and guaranteed there, and while Satan's defeat was secured at the cross and guaranteed there, the full application of both of those things is not yet. It's already been accomplished, but it's not yet been fully applied. And so uh, Christ is still crushing the serpent's head through the work of his people. That's us. And so because of the fact that Christ crushed the serpent, we as the people of God also are crushing the serpent now today under our feet. Because what does Jesus say? He says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we, through the power of our savior, are invading the kingdom of God. We're defeating the forces of darkness. We are bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by leading them to Christ and bringing them to salvation. And thus we are ravaging the kingdom of Satan and, and, and putting the hurt on him. And so we read, for example, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in Luke ten nineteen, he says, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, all the snake handling cults think that means we're supposed to get four foot diamondback rattlesnakes and hand them around the room. Um, but that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. He is personifying Satan here uh, as a serpent. And he's saying that you are going to defeat Satan in your ministry as ministers of the gospel, bringing um, the message to uh, of salvation, and Satan's not going to be able to stop you from doing that. And then in Romans 16 and verse 20, it says, The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And so he's telling the Romans that 
your victory over Satan is certain and secure. And so we can resist the devil and what? He will flee from us. And so he's constantly getting hammered by the people of God uh, as they go forward under the banner of Christ, invading the kingdom of darkness and uh, defeating uh, Satan's power there by the power of Christ and the spirit of God. And so Satan, the God of this world, has been conquered by Christ and Satan is being conquered by the saints of God. And then finally, Jesus Christ will fully and totally apply his victory over Satan at his second coming. And so when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, he's going to lay hold on this, that old serpent, the devil, and he's going to cast him into the lake of fire. And he's going to be tormented there day and night forever and ever and ever. And so it speaks very clearly about that in the book of Revelation chapter 14. In uh, Revelation 14, um, it says, um, no, that's about the people who took the, 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 the mark of the uh, beast. Um, Yeah, it's Revelation 20 and verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so that's going to happen when the Lord Jesus comes back at his second coming when Satan will be cast into hell forever. So the promise of Genesis 3.15 is being fulfilled throughout redemptive history. It was promised. We see the prophets expanding and explaining the promise through the process of of the covenants and the revelation that surrounded those covenants. We see uh, that promise being uh, secured by the life and death of Jesus Christ and the cross we see that the church on the basis of the victory of Christ is advancing that victory in its application. And we see that when Jesus Christ returns, that that victory will be finally finished in terms of its um, consummation and its conclusion. And so there is coming a day when every knee will bow of those in heaven and of those in the earth and those under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And when it happens, Satan's defeat will be absolutely complete and, um, and total. And so what we have then is the covenants. In the covenants is the taking of this promise in Genesis 3.15, and we see it being expanded and developed and um, fulfilled Uh, through the process of covenantal revelation, administration, and development. And so what I want to leave you with is simply this, is that when you look around you and you look inside of you and you see the struggle you have with sin and you see the apparent progress that evil is making in this world, it's easy to get a defeatist attitude as a Christian. And to feel like, oh no, uh, everything's going to pieces. 
everything's, um, you, know, you know, we're losing. And I, I just want to say to you that we're not. Uh, Christ has a plan to triumph over Satan. He is executing that plan, and victory is certain and secure. And no matter how powerful the enemies of the gospel and the people of God seem to be, they're going down to defeat. And so we need to have a very optimistic attitude about the future and about the victory that Christ has secured for us, is applying for us, and will ultimately complete in its application to us. And so each covenant, as we study these covenants, has its origin and foundation in that promise of Genesis 3.15 in the eternal plan, which exalts Christ and his triumph over the enemy of Satan. And so Genesis 3.15 is absolutely the foundation stone of the totality of the plan of God's salvation and is the foundation stone upon which all the covenants rest and out of which they all flow. And the end and the consummation is going to be is that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And all enemies will be destroyed. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And of course, death is what Satan brought. And in the defeat of death is the defeat of Satan himself. So be encouraged. We're on the winning side. Um, the victory is going forward apace. And appearances to the contrary, uh, Christ is building his kingdom. And he is bringing about the defeat of Satan on a daily basis. As more and more of God's elect are saved, and as the church... Uh, grows larger and larger until finally the body of Christ is fully completed and Jesus returns and the victory is finalized. So this then is what is at the core of the covenants. I mean, why do we have covenants? Why do we have them? We have them because they're the vehicle through which God is accomplishing his promise and plan of redemption articulated in Genesis 3.15. So what you have is a single unifying theme that ties the whole Bible together, and that's God's redemptive plan. And what you have is a series of covenantal uh, administrations which then uh, accomplish and carry out that plan and bring it to its full fruition in the end. And so as we look at the Noahic covenant, as we look at the Abrahamic covenant, as we look at the Old Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant, we're going to see all of them are designed to do one thing, and that is to bring to fruition the promise that he shall crush the serpent's head. And that the defeat that occurred in the garden is going to be reversed, and that what God originally intended and planned is going to be fully accomplished, and thus our memory verse today. He that hath an ear, let him hear with the Spirit, saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh, will I grant, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're going to get to eat the tree. Adam lost it for us. Christ regained it for us. And when we eat that tree, we'll be back to the point to where Satan and his work will be completely defeated and reversed. And all that God intended for Adam to achieve, had he not eaten of the tree of knowledge and evil, will be achieved. All right, let's pray together. 
Father, thank you so much for the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that was given to Adam and to Eve. Lord, you didn't have to give that promise. You could have just let the human race experience the death you promised. But Lord, for your own glory, you determined not to accept that defeat, but that you would defeat the one who attempted to defeat your glory and your plan and purpose. Thank you that you've accomplished that through the perfect means, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that we might all be participants in his victory as we believe in him and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, for such a wonderful Redeemer. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we shall be with him in triumph and we shall see Satan utterly defeated and all restored to us that was lost through his evil acts by the grace and mercy and power of God. Father, give us a sight of that and may we work towards that every day of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.